1. We're going to start at verse 27 and just look at a few verses here and what the Lord would have to say to us through his word. Philippians 1, starting at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Father, we just ask that as your word is read, as your word is preached, that you would work by your spirit to do that which brings you the greatest glory. Even in these coming minutes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, a few years back, about eight years ago almost now, um, it was the 5th of July. It was a holiday. It was a beautiful, warm, sunny day. And my family, we had not been to the beach in quite a while. So we decided to hop in the car actually to hop in the SUV. I had a, a Toyota 4Runner. It was silver. It had a moonroof. I thought I was pretty bad. Y'all see me driving around in my little brown minivan these days, but don't, don't, don't sleep on that. I'm going to put some spinners on it before you know it. But I'm in my cool vehicle, my, my Toyota 4Runner. Throw the family in there. Um, with the exception of my oldest daughter who was away, she wasn't with us. And we threw all the stuff in there to, for a day at the beach. We took off and we went through uh, Philly and we're on 676 going past Camden on our way to the Atlantic City Expressway. Um, as we're going there, I see in the, the, the side mirror on the passenger side a van that's coming right at us. So I begin to pull over towards uh, the left-hand side. There's a concrete median in the middle of the expressway there. But I'm pulling over to avoid that van, but I can't avoid it, and it smashes up against us. Right before it hit us, I remember hearing the most wonderful, eloquent, beautiful prayer I've ever heard in my life. My wife said, Jesus, help! No thou's, no these, no nothing else. Jesus, help! The van hit us. My, my, my SUV crunched into the median wall, and I mean crunched into it. Glass is flying all over the place. Um, the next thing I know, I'm upside down in the vehicle. And I'm looking around, and, and I realize that I'm alive. It's good sign number one. And I see that my wife is there, and she's moving, so she's all right. And I see Leah. This is the day Leah got the Holy Ghost for real. She'll tell you. It's true. You know it's true. 
Leah was wearing flip-flops that we never found again because they flew off her feet. The window was open. Um, and Leah was doing the holy dance on the highway with, with, with like David danced before the Lord with all his might. She was dancing before the Lord with all her might, glass all over the place. No shoes on, nothing on her feet, but happy in Jesus. So I saw my wife. She's good. I saw my daughter. She's better than good. And, but I'm looking for my son. I don't see him. I don't hear him. And at that moment, everything in me, nothing else mattered. I don't care about the first cool vehicle I've ever had. Maybe the last. I don't care about anything. Else. I don't care about missing a day at the beach or if, if I'm bleeding somewhere, if I have whiplash. I don't care about any of that. I care about one thing. Where's my son? Where's my son? I run out of the car and, and go on the other side and I see him and he's okay. God preserved our lives that day. The next day I went to the lot where, um, where they had taken the vehicle and uh, when I showed up, the guy there said, I'm so surprised to see you here. And I said, why are you surprised? They told me they were taking the van here and I was supposed to come here, so you shouldn't be surprised. He walked me out to the, to, uh, the SUV and beside it were several other vehicles. He said, that one, three people died. Right there, two people died. The driver died in this one. And, and mine is right there and it looks just like all these other vehicles. We went to the hospital to get checked out, but no one was even hurt. God is good. God is good. Now, whenever I share that testimony, I also share that I know that same day, someone that loves Jesus just as much as me and more was probably in an accident and went to be with Jesus that day. So the fact that he saved me and my family from physical harm doesn't mean that God loves us any more than he loved that other person that he took to be with him that day. But, but what I want you to hear out of this is in that moment, nothing else mattered to me for a moment but that where is my son? I love my son. And as Paul writes this letter to this church that he rejoices in and loves, he's writing from prison. Of all his letters, this is the one with the most affection and love that you'll see on every line in this letter to the Philippians. He loves them dearly, but he is telling them over and over again of his passion for one thing, and that is a passion for the gospel. He says in verse 5 of chapter 1, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion even until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is excited throughout this whole letter about the gospel. He goes on in the first chapter to talk about his imprisonment. But he says, it's a good thing, y'all, because I'm in this prison. All of the imperial guard of the Roman emperor knows about Jesus now. And he says, now there's some people who are preaching to just in spite of me. They're preaching for crazy motives. Other people are preaching for good motives. But he says, I don't care what motive they're preaching for, just that Christ is preached. 
And so as he's sharing the words in this letter, he is excited about the one thing that matters more than anything else, and that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to these verses, starting at verse 27. I'm going to talk on the subject together for the gospel. Together for the gospel. Three points today. The first point is standing together for the gospel. Standing together for the gospel. Let's look at the text. Verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, let me just do a little bit more background on this so you'll understand what's going on in Philippi. Philippi was uh, a small city, actually, until King Philip, who was the father of Alexander the Great, made it a colony for soldiers in the fourth century before Christ. But later on, about 40 years before Christ, um, there was a battle there between different uh, sections of the Romans, and it became then a Roman colony in about 42 B.C. And so they made a garrison there for Roman soldiers. And now everyone that lived in the city of Philippi was now a Roman citizen. That was a big, big deal. Now we talk in, a lot of, a lot of folks use the language, I think it's horrible language, of people that live in the United States and are not citizens and don't have certain papers. They call them illegal aliens. I think that's... Uh, a bad name. I think that's an inaccurate way of describing people. They're undocumented. They might not have papers, but illegal aliens is not the right way to categorize them. That notwithstanding, <laughs> that notwithstanding, a person who is not here with the rights and citizenship can be treated all, treated all kinds of different ways. And in Rome, it was that way. In most places where the Roman Empire went, people were not citizens, and therefore they did not have basic rights that we would take for granted but those in philippi were special because they were granted roman citizenship by being in the city of philippi and that's important in what paul is about to write to them here as a matter of fact there's one other place where he talks about citizenship and that's in chapter 3 and verse 20 and paul reminds them in verse 20 of chapter 3, but our citizenship is in heaven, he says, and, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this letter we'll see that Paul begins to appeal to the, citizenship, to the citizenship of these folks. Verse 27 he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now last week Pastor E preached on Ephesians 4.1 where he said, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Here he uses a totally different word where he says your manner of life. It's the word from which we get the English word politics. The word means to be a citizen. It means to make or create a citizen, to behave as a citizen. So for these people who are drenched in the fact of the importance of their Roman citizenship, Paul says to them, let your manner of life be such that you bring glory to the gospel of Christ. One other translation, New Living Translation, puts it this way, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. 
conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Now, this is our call. This is the beginning of this section. We are called to live as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, worthy of the gospel with which we have been called. This is the call that God puts on us. So let's look at the first part here. Standing together for Christ. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and one mind. Standing firm in one spirit and one mind. The first point is standing together for Christ. Now, I've been reading so far from the ESV, that's the English Standard Version. In the last gathering, we had about 100 people here from South Carolina. Wonderful guests came from South Carolina. So I read from a slightly different version called the SEV or the Southern English Version. So it's very close to the ESV, very close, but many of you are Bible scholars and have a deep knowledge of the Lord, so let me read this and see if you can see the subtle difference between the ESV and the SEV. So let's read verse 27 again. Only let y'all manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see y'all or am absent, I may hear of y'all that y'all are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Did you see that subtle difference? It is right. Because as Paul is appealing to these people, he's not appealing to singular folk. We can use you, and it just means, it just means Kurt. But when I say y'all, I'm talking about Kurt and Courtney. That's a y'all. So when he's writing these words, he's saying he's appealing to a group of people together. And he says to them that I may hear that you are standing firm, that y'all are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. It means that you together are able to stand firm. Now, Paul is living this out in front of them. Even at the beginning of this uh, epistle, he writes that this is from Paul and Timothy. Whenever you see Paul's missionary journeys throughout the book of Acts and in all of his letters, Paul is partnered up with somebody. He's yoked together with somebody, Barnabas or Luke or Timothy, or Epaphroditus, or others throughout his writings. He's always yoked up together with someone because Paul knows the fact that he's not going to make it in this walk by himself. Be all the missionary you want. Be all the apostle you want. Get the revelation and get knocked down from a horse on the road to Damascus if you want, but I won't make it without my brothers in this walk with Christ. And that's what he's communicating here to these folks. I was looking at uh, something about giant sequoia trees in California. Where are my Cali people in the house? Come on, California is in the house. A couple California folks in the house. Amen. 
giant sequoia trees grow in one place in Southern California. They can be from 250 to over 300 feet tall. They, that, that's 25 stories tall. They can weigh 12 million pounds. That's as much as a freighter that's on the ocean carrying whatever freighters carry. But these huge trees, the largest trees on the earth, don't have a deep root system at all. Their roots are no more than four or at the most five feet underground. Now can you imagine that's holding up 12 million pounds of tree? And we know California. I mean, I love California and all that, but there's always another mudslide. Amen? There's always an earthquake on the way in California. There's always another fire, you know. You always hear these things. In Cal I'm sorry, my Cali folks, but it's like you always are hearing this stuff in California. And yet these trees, many of them are over 1,000 years old. Many of them are over 2,000 years old. The oldest living thing on the earth in terms of vegetation is a giant sequoia tree. One of them they estimate to be over 2,700 years old. So when Isaiah was writing a letter, this tree was growing. Just, just look at that, okay? These, these are ancient trees with a shallow root system. That doesn't make no sense. But though the roots are shallow, they go wide. They can go anywhere from 150 feet to 250 feet away from the tree. And those roots, they're not deep, but they're wide. They intermingle with the roots of all the other giant sequoia trees. So much so that you can never see a sequoia tree off to the side just chilling, saying, look at me, I'm a giant sequoia tree. They're always hanging in a pack. They're always together. Their strength is not in their depth their strength is in their numbers. Believers, believers, believers. You think you can withstand what the enemy has for you because you're deep? You are not that deep. You think you've got your weight up and you can flex on someone who's been around for thousands of years before you? You can flex all you want but you're going to get hurt. But when the body of Christ is connected one to another, we can withstand the attacks of the enemy. So the scripture says, I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind. You know, a sequoia tree is not surrounded by elm trees and palm trees and birch trees and other trees and drawing strength. Sequoia trees only are found where there are other sequoia trees around it. There's no other big trees there. There's no room for them. So they, 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 they are intertwined with like-minded trees. Amen? If trees had minds. So, so when the scripture says, standing firm together in one mind and one spirit, who are you vitally connected with in your life? 
See, we've got to look at that very carefully because you can probably learn more about a person by those who they call their close inner circle than you can know about a person any other way. What do your friends look like? What do your closest associates look like? He said, we want people who are together with one mind, with one spirit, striving together in the gospel of Christ. So who are you connected to? Is it like-minded believers whose primary objective in life is to magnify Christ and live out their life in such a way that God is counted worthy and Christ is magnified through their life? Or is it someone else? So he says to these Philippians, standing firm in one mind and in one spirit, standing together for the gospel. But he goes on here. He says, not only standing together, standing firm in one spirit, but also in the middle of that verse, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, striving side by side. Here, Paul uses a word. Uh, it's, it's the Greek word from which we get our word athlete from. But there's a prefix in front of it, and it's a prefix that he uses at least 16 times in the book of Philippians it's a it's a it's a prefix that means with or together so anyone who was reading this book in the original Greek and knew and knew it would see that over and over again Paul is emphasizing underlining putting in 72 font together with one another together with one another in this but this word is that compound word um from athlete and with or together, it means having struggled together, contending side by side to strive at the same time with one another, to wrestle in the company with, to seek jointly, to labor with, to strive together. That's what this word means when he says striving side by side for faith, for the faith of the gospel. So he uses this athletic analogy. He's saying, Philippians, you are a team, and you're a team that can win as you strive side by side together with one another for the faith of the gospel. You won't win if you try to do it yourself. Ecclesiastes puts it this way, starting in the fourth chapter and the ninth verse, it says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And then he says, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. You want to take me down? Okay. You could probably take me down. But Joel, come over here, man. Kirk, come over here, man. Come on, quick. <laughs> Tag. Okay, sit down. I got to find some other boy. No, come on, come on. I'm just, I'm just playing. Tag, man. Y'all got to be quicker. Now try to take me down. <laughs> Three-fold cord is not quickly broken. Go ahead, sit down, y'all. I got some help from my brothers, right? 
when we're when we're wrapped up and tied up not only in Jesus but also in deep relationship with one another he says striving side by side together in the gospel Paul uses this as an athletic analogy he uses athletic analogies elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 he talks about running a race to win the race he talks about boxing in such a way I'm not just beating the air but I'm beating my opponent right so so in this gospel analogy, we see that we are in this contest. It's competitive. That means there can be winners and there can be losers. Paul says, you want to win? Go together. You want to win? Be together. Um, Wilt Chamberlain was one of my favorite basketball players. Now, that just tells you I'm a little older than most people in this room. I just kind of saw the end of his career. But Wilt Chamberlain from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, thank you very much. Wilt from West Philadelphia, he was actually born and raised. Um, no, nah, let me leave that alone. But, but Wilt Chamberlain, uh, when he came into the NBA, he was a force that no one could reckon with. When he came into the NBA, he led the league in scoring his first seven years in the league. One year, he averaged over 50 points a game. Just to put that in context, Dwayne Wade, LeBron James, together are averaging about 50 points a game. Together. Will averaged 50 points a game by himself. He was a force to be reckoned with. He was a physical monstrosity. No one could contain him. He, he, he went crazy. Led the league in scoring every year. No one else was close. Never won a championship those seven years. The best player, the most physically imposing, powerful player that the league had ever seen, head and shoulders above those he played against, never won a championship those seven years. Of course, then he came back to Philadelphia, 76ers. And he said, I want to win a championship, not a scoring title. So he changed his game. He cut his points almost in half, and he became one of the leading uh, uh, players in assists in the whole league. He was passing to other guys to get them an open shot. And that year when he changed his game and changed the way he did things, the 76ers not only won the championship for his first time in his career, but they had the best record that any team had ever had up to that point because he saw that being a lone ranger, being the guy who scores all the points and gets all the headlines, that's good, but it's not going to get me a championship. It's not going to help me to win. I want to win. That's my question to you today. Do you want to win? Or do you want the headlines? Do you want people to think you're deep and you're this and you're that and the other in the gospel? Wow. They really got it going on. Because you know what? We can be in a group like we just described. We can be in a group of two or three. And people are confessing about their struggles and their sins. And I can be in that same group and say, man, I'm going to pray for you. I'm not struggling with that. No, I'm good. I'm good. And I can give you some deep Hebrew and Greek spiritual church fathers lessons, reformation stuff, and let you know just how deep I am in the scriptures. And we're in that group together, and you're growing, and God is moving you, and I am impressing you with my great spirituality. I am doing a slam dunk every time down the court, letting you know that I've got my stuff together. But then one day you find out 
that my life is a mess. That I'm not just struggling with sins, but I stopped struggling a while ago. And I just gave in to it. But I'm deep. Hope you want not to get the headline, but to win the championship. Live in a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. So we strive together in him. And thirdly, and you wish I didn't have time for this, but unfortunately for you, I do. Not only standing together for the gospel and striving together for the gospel, but also suffering together for the gospel. Let's read, starting at verse 28. He says, and not frightened by anything by your opponents, in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you. Now, usually when you think of something being granted to you, I might think of being having an inheritance in a will. And a piece of land was granted to me. That's a hallelujah dance time. Or a large sum of money was bequeathed to me. Bequeathed. Sounds very King James. It was granted to me. So, so I'm excited about what was granted to me. But what the scripture says is it has been granted to you to suffer for his sake. Granted that we might suffer for the sake of Christ. What, what are they suffering for? In Philippi, what's going on there? Well, in all likelihood, it's because they're Roman colony, they're Roman citizens, and here you have this new group of people, these Jesus folks. And as good Romans, whenever there was a gathering of people, Caesar had two titles. Caesar is Lord, and Caesar is Savior. But Christians had another guy. Who had those titles Jesus Jesus is Lord Jesus is Savior and so Philippians is actually the only letter that Paul wrote where you'll find the words Lord and Savior together isn't that something we just think of that term all the time Lord and Savior Peter uses that term quite often but in all of Paul's writings the only place you see Lord and Savior together are in Philippians 3 and verse 20, we're waiting for a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So that's the only place you see it in Paul's writings. Why? Because he realizes that for these folks, the threat on their Roman citizenship is that they will stand up and say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And therefore, they have to contend for the faith of the gospel. Therefore, they will in all likelihood suffer for their proclamation of Christ as they walk with him. And Jesus said to you and to me and to all his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation. 
someone asked me after the last service about this idea of suffering for Christ. And, you know, I might not go to jail. I might not get tortured. I might not go through all these things. We know that all around the world, believers in different parts of the world are going through those things exactly. Martyrs are dying daily that you don't see in your newspaper. They're dying because they dare to stand up and say that Jesus is Lord. We may not go through that type of suffering here, but what is it that God is calling you to in terms of suffering for your belief in Jesus Christ? And I, I would just I would challenge everyone in this room today who calls themselves a believer in Jesus Christ that if you consistently attempt to live out that life for Christ, you won't have to ask where is suffering going to come from. You'll go through it. You'll know what it's like to be ostracized. You'll know what it's like to be looked at all kinds of different ways. You'll know what it's like perhaps to give up all kinds of opportunities and income because I'm not going that way. You'll know what it's like for people in your hometown perhaps to say, he's just weird now. I don't know what happened to him. You'll know what it's like to be rejected from family members at times. You'll know what it's like to suffer for Christ if you are attempting to consistently live for him in this world. And Jesus promised that we go through it. Martin Luther said, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his, trump, his truth to triumph through us. We just sang the song a few moments ago. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand. God has called us not only to stand for him, not only to strive forward for him, but also to suffer for him. And he calls us to do that in the context of the Christian community from which we gain strength that we would never have in and of ourselves. God is sanctifying us as his people, in order that we might be his missionaries to proclaim his word. Is the gospel that important to you? Does it mean that much? D.A. Carson wrote in his commentary to the Philippians these words. He said, I would like, about, I would like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much. Just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself don't want to love those from different races. Gosh, that wouldn't work good in my house. He says, I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved 
but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of gospel, please. I fear sometimes that in our culture, it's so easy for us to buy $3 worth of gospel. And then we can go and buy $19.99 worth of Kung Fu accountability. But God's calling us to something much, much different than that. Paul, as he writes this, this letter, in one part of the verses we just read, he said, whether I'm present with you or whether I'm absent, I want to find you this way. Earlier in the letter, he had told them that to live is Christ, to die is gain. And he was awaiting his sentence while he's writing these words to the Philippians, the sentence which will either set him free or he could lose his life. And Paul says about that, you know, it's better for me. I would prefer to go and be with Jesus. But nevertheless, I think I have to stick around here for a while for your sake. The gospel was so central to him. Being close to Christ was everything to him. And yet we treat it as if I can take $3 worth of gospel. Please. God's calling us something to, to something radically different than that. I pray that we would, as a congregation, take community life seriously. If you're not in a life group, I pray that you'd really consider making your schedule a little bit more messed up, adding in some inconvenience, but getting with some saints who will encourage you and strengthen you, and you may not believe it, but even in all your mess, you will encourage them and strengthen them as well. I pray that as we try to live this gospel out together, as we're contending and striving side by side for the gospel, that we will desire more than anything to win. And winning means giving maximum glory to Christ in our life. And that may mean for many of you, finding someone that you will lock arms with and say, we're going to do this DNA group thing together. We're, we're going to press into Jesus in a way we haven't before. And even if you're doing that already, I'd ask you to look at the materials that we have and say, is there a way we can do this even more effectively? We'll make it together or we won't make it at all. Let me just read one last thing to you as we close. We cannot... And we must not separate sanctification from mission. They are both the work of the Holy Spirit. Unless Christ is formed in you, sanctification, what gospel do you have to offer? We do not preach the gospel of religious legend and theoretical possibilities. We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord and Savior, who lives and reigns in our hearts and who is coming back to set everything under his perfect all-powerful and everlasting rule. We preach the present tense, ongoing reality of the triune God who knows everything about us and still forgives us. 
He knows everything about us and still loves us. He knows everything about us and still intercedes for us, protects us, and transforms us into his image. We preach this God, the God of the Bible. We preach this Christ, the eternal and all-powerful word who was made flesh. And the right to preach this word and the power that accompanies this word is the power of the life that is being transformed by this word. World-changing mission comes from spirit-powered sanctification. And neither is possible without the ever-present reality of Christian community. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your love for us is greater than all the demonic forces of hell. We thank you, Lord, that as Paul's going to write a little bit later in this same book of Philippians, that we have a Savior, Lord, who did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself and became a man like us. And being in the form of man, he suffered on our behalf and died even the death on a cross. And your word says, therefore also God highly exalted him and gave him a name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is to the glory of God. Lord, we thank you that you are Lord. Have your way with us, Lord. May we hear your word, be moved by it, and grow together that we might win together in glorifying your name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.